and welcome back to Vox Popcast, a weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. Except for this week, maybe a little less of both of those things? My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with nobody. So, the last couple of weeks, you've heard us prepare for PCA, our annual conference, and then you heard our PCA after show. Well, this week, we've got something a little special. What we're going to present to you is the actual presentations that Hannah, Wayne, Monica, and myself did at PCA this year. A little pre-warning if you're watching the YouTube version of this show. My presentation in particular is very not work safe. There is a lot of, frankly, pornographic material that is used here for educational purposes very much for educational purposes, I'm going to analyze it. So prior warning, if you're watching the YouTube feed, if you're not watching the YouTube feed, well, it doesn't matter because you're just going to hear me talk about it, but you should be watching the YouTube feed. I don't get a chance to make YouTube versions of our videos that often anymore because I've just been really, really busy and I'm trying to get back to that. But for this one in particular, We're going to present the slideshows that we use for the talks. So you'll be able to see what the people at PCA saw as we're talking. So do me a favor, go over to the YouTube channel and like and subscribe. It's linked in the show notes if you're listening to the audio feed. And if you're listening on YouTube, please subscribe to us on the audio feed because we have a show there every week. Hopefully I'll get back to doing the YouTube show on a weekly basis sometime soon. But, you know, you should be able to enjoy it without seeing that. But it might be a little more illustrative if you see it, particularly with my talk, Wayne's talk and Monica's talk. Hannah um, actually made her talk to not use images. I added them after the fact for the YouTube show. Speaking of which, Hannah is our first presenter. She presented on the first day of the conference about Eternals, a movie which regular listeners will know she quite enjoyed. And so here we go. I present Hannah Rogers at PCA. So uh, without further ado, um, my paper is called The Struggle for Sympathy, How Eternals Reformulates Evolutionary Theory. Within the first 10 minutes of Chloe Zhao's 2021 film Eternals, the camera lingers on a large statue of Victorian naturalist Charles Darwin. This is not merely a clever allusion to the evolutionary theorist, but a signal to viewers that the film will incorporate Darwinian thought into its action. Specifically, Eternals appears to be inspired by Darwin's later work, which emphasized that instinctive emotions such as sympathy were not only key to survival, but to the development of local and global communities. Using the familial relationships between the Eternals, the film repackages Victorian natural science for a contemporary audience. In doing so, Eternals offers viewers an ethical theory of relationality and critiques theories of scarcity and domination, often tied to the theories that inspired Darwin, as well as those inspired by his work. In essence, the big picture of what I want to discuss today is how narratives from natural science, even narratives from our past, have become prevalent in popular culture and what the consequences come from this influence. The stories that have been told to explain the origin of life, for instance, have naturalized how we both recognize life and define it as valuable. 
So before I get into the 2021 Eternals, I would like to briefly go back about 160 years to Charles Darwin's publication of Origin of the Species. And this might seem a bit ambitious for a short presentation, but this is about 6,800 years less of a time jump than Eternals itself makes in its first 10 minutes. So, you know, if Eternals takes place majorly in a post-Thanos world, then Darwin was writing in a post-Malthus 19th century. Both the Marvel supervillain and the 18th century economist fear-mongered the consequences of population growth and projected a dystopian world where individuals struggled to survive in a world of scarcity, to put it mildly. Both Darwin's theories and Eternals, oddly enough, are being forced to reckon with a reality where, to borrow the phrase from Friedrich Engels, it has been declared that the right to live, quote, a right previously asserted in favor of every man in the world, is nonsense, end quote. The question of life is at the heart of both Darwin's scientific work and the philosophical questions that underpin the Eternals, very prominently in the 2021 film, but generally in their comic history. And I'm still like learning a lot about their comic history, so I am no expert. So social Darwinism, since Origins publication, has picked up on strands of evolutionary thought and translated them into narrative to explain all components of society. Narratives of popular culture, especially, are subject to this discourse. As Michel Foucault has explained of this phenomenon, evolution as broadly applied theory, quote, naturally became within a few years during the 19th century, a real way of thinking about the relations between colonization, the necessity for wars, criminality, the phenomenon of madness and mental illness, the history of societies with their different classes, and so on. And if you've watched Eternals, then you know that the film tackles these very examples Foucault gives as it thinks very seriously about when life remains valuable or not. Foucault would tell us that this biological turn in thought has the end goal of making, quote, life in general healthier, healthier and purer, end quote. The mission of the Eternals of the 2021 Marvel film could very well be said to align with this philosophy. As they are directed by celestials to not interfere in human conflicts unless the so-called predatory deviants are involved. The justification for this given by Circe is, quote, if we protected humanity for everything for 7,000 years, you would never have had the chance to develop the way you were meant to, end quote. Or as Foucault might put it, power resides in deciding what must live and what must die. This type of power becomes literalized here in the superhero and the celestial. We should not forget Arisham quite literally begins this process as judge of who shall live and who shall not at the end of the film. And his philosophy, as well as that of several of the Eternals, spoiler alert for the 2021 film, of which there are very few in this presentation, um, some of which I've already given away, sorry, uh, argues not just for the elimination of the deviants, but of the human race as a whole. Mass death must occur for the creation of, quote, billions of lives across the universe. Zhao emphasizes how the Celestials have naturalized the practice of deciding who lives and who dies through a cyclical process. The film reveals that Earth is not the first mission this group of Eternals have undertaken. Crow the Deviant summarizes the team's culpability after gaining Ajax memories. Quote, so many planets, so much life destroyed every time the Celestial is born. Arisham used us and left us to die with each emergence. We just wanted to survive. Then he sent the Eternals to murder the Deviants. You're not saviors, Eternals. You are murderers. Note that the emphasis on survival is mine. Crow's admittedly limited screen time emphasizes the struggle for life that underpins Eternals and positions the alleged heroes of this film as being caught up in a never-ending cycle of colonization and war. 
The Eternal Druid further notes this complicity when the Eternals are present in 1521 during the Spanish colonization of the Americas. Angered at being ordered not to intervene in the human conflict, he challenges orders. Quote, this isn't war, it's genocide. Their weapons have become too deadly. We're just like the soldiers down there, pawns to our leaders. The answer that fellow eternal fastos gives is that development, even of harmful technology, is, quote, part of their evolutionary process. This is telling. Genocide is normalized through evolution here. Throughout the film, it becomes clear. The philosophy the Eternals have been given by the Celestials is just as twisted as the motivations of Thanos. And notably, Fastos later regrets displacing his own responsibility about 400 years later when confronted with 1945 Hiroshima. War is naturalized on all fronts in Eternals as demonstrated by Celestial Decree, the insistence on evolution at every moment of human development, and even the opening sequence knowing the need for the Eternals to, quote, restore the natural order through the systemic removal of the deviants. Marvel Studios itself has generally only told story, stories predicated on violence and questions of who is capable of will it, wielding that violence. So if war is naturalized completely to the point that it is linked to an evolutionary process, then what discourse is another Marvel film capable of producing to argue against this biological turn? I will endeavor to answer this very, very big question with my remaining time. To do so, we'll need to move beyond the survival of the fittest, a term, by the way, that did not originate with Darwin himself, and see Darwin in a new light. In Darwin's origin, he describes the struggle for existence in terms that very well might be dialogue plucked from the Eternals itself. Battle within battle must be ever reoccurring with varying success, and yet in the long run, the forces are so nicely balanced, bound together in a web of complex relations. Since Origins publication in 1859, much has been made about the cruelty of Darwin's natural world, including by me. But for today, I want to focus on the cooperative and indeed sympathetic components of Darwin's theories. This strand of Darwinian thinking has long been recognized by his relative contemporaries, such as Peter Kropotkin, the writer of Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution, and has captured the attention of recent Darwin scholars. George Levine's Darwin Loves You perhaps most accurately summarizes the complexity of the concept of the struggle for existence as it has, quote, all the earmarks of Darwin's acquaintance with Malthus, and yet there are passages in it that turn the idea of struggle on its head and incorporate into it elements that might be called love. A struggle, in Darwin's use of the term, incorporates a wide range of relationships, only some small portion of which might be said to entail violence, end quote. Darwin would later go on to theorize the emotions played um, in evolution and in particular human development in works such as Descent of Man and the expression of the emotions in man and animals. To give a very brief summary, Darwin found the feeling of sympathy to be instinctual, noting how collectively a species with more sympathetic members might indeed survive as a community because of their will to protect one another. This type of instinctual sympathy is exactly how internals inserts itself into a conversation to resist, on one hand, the neo-Malthusian philosophy of Thanos' world of scarcity, and on the other hand, critique the underpaying values of social Darwinism that have shaped modern thought. If Thanos ultimately sacrificed feeling in favor of his mission, Eternals is careful to show Orisham's understanding of feeling as counterintuitive to his. Orisham warns Ajax early in the Eternals' time on Earth quote, do not get attached to this planet. Ajax pushed for the Eternals to find their own purpose, to build connections at the end of the film's first act, sets up the inevitable sympathetic turn. Ajax learns to sympathize with humanity 
and in doing so argues for the Eternals to chart a new purpose. Quote, I have seen them fight and lie and kill, but I've also seen them laugh and love. I've seen them create and dream. This planet and these people have changed me. The cost of a Risham's design is not worth it. To sympathize with others then because the first step towards rejecting the violence that has been so naturalized. What is important to both Darwin's version of sympathy and the Eternals is the equivocation of love to protection. The sympathetic instinct is what drives one to act during moments of danger. Dina explains this to Cersei quite clearly in these terms. Quote, when you love something, you protect it. It is the most natural thing in the world. You have loved these people since the day we arrived. So there is no one better to lead us now than you. End quote. Notice the emphasis here on natural. Emotions, I posit, are presented as instincts. Dina's definition of love could very well be pulled from Descent of Man or Expressions of Emotions, where Darwin gives numerous examples of how sympathy impacts everyday survival. For example, Darwin claims, quote, it must be called sympathy that leads a courageous dog to fly at anyone who strikes his master, as he certainly will. Viewers of the film are certainly treated to enough shots of different members of the Eternals defending one another throughout early battles. We might also note the relationships that motivate the Eternals to save Earth, Cersei and her love for humanity, crystallized in her romantic relationship with Dean Whitman, Bastos and his choice to stop the emergence so that he and his husband can see their son grow up, the relationships among the Eternals themselves. The film puts the sympathetic instinct to the test over two major scenes during its climax. Once the film reveals its major twist, that Icarus has long known of Earth's imminent destruction and is willing to turn on his family to fill Orisham's design, the Eternals begin to fracture. And what is perhaps the most interesting moment in the film, Kingo refuses to take a side in the conflict. While he agrees with Icarus and has even previously declared his loyalty, Kingo's reaction to Icarus's betrayal is to protect the other Eternals. He literally throws himself in front of Makari when Icarus attacks her with his eye beams. He then takes a defensive position and says, quote, you do not turn against your family. He then quite literally removes himself from the final act of the film because he cannot bear to hide harm either side of his family. Zhao has noted in an interview with Uprox that this was one of the most important moments in the film. Zhao elaborates on the script choice quote, and I would say this is personal. I think it's one of the bravest things someone did in this movie is decide not to fight, not to hurt people for their beliefs. End quote. Kingo's instinctive reactions to make split-second decisions to protect Makari translates to his reasoned actions. Kingo's refusal sets the stage for an even greater test of sympathy, the final confrontation between Cersei and Icarus. We know two major things about this Icarus. One, that he's deeply in love with Cersei, and two, that unlike Kingo, Icarus is very much willing to harm those he calls family to enforce the Celestial's natural order. When Zhao pits Icarus against Cersei, she's also paying two philosophies that emerge from Darwin's work against one another. That is, a clash between social Darwinist impulses against mutual aid and care. We see this conflict quite, quite literally manifest in Icarus through his superpower. For a moment, we see the golden glow in Icarus's eyes that signal an imminent attack, an attack that would surely solidify the victory of Arisham. But the power wavers as his protective, dare I say sympathetic, instincts take control. And just so we do not mistake his motivation for anything but love, Zhao cuts to a montage of memories between Cersei and Icarus that span the moments of their life together. Icarus is not defeated by overpowering force or superintelligence or even by the love of someone else for him. He's defeated by his own sympathetic instincts. If Icarus himself is not capable of grappling with the bigger picture of this moment, 
then we as an audience are perhaps challenged to think about what it would mean for us to reject impulses, no matter how natural as they may seem, that focus only on making life, quote, healthier and purer, and instead think about ourselves as a collective body. To end my remarks, I'd like to address a rather strange gap in the film's thinking. Perhaps those of you familiar with The Eternals have already thought of this when I mentioned the deviants earlier. Viewers of the film, both in critical reviews and on message boards and even in my own casual conversations, have asked after the film premiered, in essence, why do the writers of the film not sympathize with the deviants then? Why are they not allowed to join in Cersei's rebellion? For they are clearly victims of the Celestials. Indeed, one could argue that the conflict from the deviants and the Eternals delineates an obsession with making life pure. Orisham quite literally states they must be exterminated because, quote, there was a flaw in their design. Crow is described as having a conscience. In a brief moment of reflection, Druig states this development, quote, makes them us. But these musings and parallels do not add up to any meaningful change to the narrative arc the Deviants and Eternals must follow. They still war with one another. The Deviants are still exterminated on Earth. What I'd like to note here, however, is that while the film itself might be ideologically inconsistent in its storytelling, the audience response demonstrates the film has far from failed in making its sympathetic turn. After all, when we ask the question, what about the deviance? Have we not been taught to reframe the struggle for life? Not as something where we must be pit against one another, but as a struggle for the lives of others. Thank you. And I'm back. PCA is a multi-day conference. Anna's presentation was on the first day. Mine was on the second. Once again, I want to remind people that there is a visual version of this presentation that can be seen on YouTube. But once again, I must remind you, it is very not work safe. The concepts that I'm talking about are going to be quite adult, and so is the imagery. So anyway, make sure you keep that in mind if you decide to go over there and view it. You've been warned. Actually, I'll warn you again at the beginning of the talk. In the meantime, our second presentation is me, Christopher Maverick, talking about Alan Moore and Melinda Gebby's 2006 erotic graphic novel, Lost Girls, and its association with modern Disney content. Enjoy. Hello. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am the co-host of two academic podcasts you should check out. Vox Popcast, and Gosh Golly Wow. I'm also an adjunct instructor at like 147 universities in eastern Pennsylvania. And just a fair warning here, we are going to be looking at a lot of naughty pictures in this presentation. Like really a lot of naughty pictures. And maybe even worse, there's going to be a couple of images and quotes from some conservative internet pundits. So, you know, not safe for work and all that. So you might want to remove your children from the room before I, you know, reference Ben Shapiro. You have been warned. Anyway, last year at PCA, someone jokingly challenged me to look at Alan Moore's Lost Girls. I'd been presenting on the concept of the mundane in comics. And what could be more mundane than Lost Girls? Well, if you know the book, you know it's anything but mundane. Except then I'm going to argue that it is in fact totally mundane and very importantly so, and that that is its power. First published in 2006, Alan Moore and Melinda Gebby's three-volume graphic novel serves as a sequel to several classic children's books. Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, 
and Through the Looking Glass, L. Frank Baum's Wonderful Wizard of Oz and its sequels, and J.M. Barry's Peter and Wendy. Throughout Moore and Gebby's 30-chapter text, the now-adult Alice, Dorothy, and Wendy meet in an Austrian hotel in 1913 and recount for each other their classic adventures under the narrative conceit that the original novels are actually the girlhood fantasies of teenagers concocted to cope with their sexual awakenings. These reimagined flashbacks to their adolescent sexual escapades are interspersed with the now-adult women engaged in frank feminist discussions about the turn-of-the-century gender roles in sexual politics as they engage in a series of polyamorous bisexual encounters with each other and other hotel guests, all set against the backdrop of the historic events leading up to the beginning of the First World War. There's a lot going on, and there is a lot of sex. Really a lot of sex. It would be unfairly reductive to consider Lost Girls simply salacious pornography. I mean, it certainly is salacious pornography, but it's far from simple. There's quite a fair amount of scholarship investigating the work that the text is doing. Moore himself attributes the mild critical success of Lost Girls to a combination of what he believes are his own, quote, benign sexual sensibilities, a term that he borrowed from Angela Carter. That also that allows his and Gabby's erotic fantasies to be presented as positive and beautiful. And in spite. Which he believes people only see it as art because he was trying to make porn. Alan Moore, of course, will always see things through the lens of being Alan Moore. While I can't speak to the contrarian motivation, he does seem correct to note that the text has seen critical acclaim. Alison Halsell sees it as a story of escape from feminine sexual propriety, calling the narrative a story redeployed as an erotic form of confession of sexual emergence that delights in non-normative behavior. Rebecca Wanzo argues that the backstories of all three protagonists are packed with childhood trauma, touching on issues of rape, incest, and other sexual violence. But that is, but that is important but that it importantly imagines a world where women can homosocially bond over that trauma and help each other to heal. That said, it is undoubtedly pornographic. While I acknowledge that deeper readings of Lost Girls are possible and valid, one must also recognize that if it takes academic journals and conferences full of highly educated people like us to break down the nuance of why a three-volume collection of constant, explicitly sexual drawings is deeper and more meaningful than an initial surface reading of the text as salacious smut um, trading on the legacy of beloved children's characters might imply, then the salacious smut is definitely also still in there. While the subject matter is obviously mature, curiously, Gabby's watercolor and pastel color pencil artwork is intentionally quite reminiscent of the illustrations in Kitty Lit that she and Moore are adapting, or at least in the original children's books, which are somewhat of a deviation from the more familiar incarnations in the Disney and MGM adaptations that have likely become the de facto truth copy reference model for the majority of readers who might encounter the book today. That said, these are clearly the same characters. They are clearly recognizable. It would be naive to presume that the book would have garnered anywhere near the same level of interest that it did without its unstated and tenuous but clear connection to the 1939, 1951, and 1953 films. 
This is more or less the same Alice, Dorothy, and Wendy that we have always known. But they are all grown up now. And they are unabashedly queer. Moore and Gebby present a world where fantasy was the only escape from the forced feminine purity and sexual ignorance and paradoxically prescribed heteronormativity that the heroines live in. To Moore and Gebby, in 2006, the true fantasy of Wonderland, Oz, and Never Neverland was the creation of a modern fairy tale where an adolescent girl or a mature woman of 1865, 1900, 1904, or 1913 could freely explore her sexuality. And so, let us take an excursion forward in time, 109 years, and see how that worked out. I direct your attention to some recent criticism of the LGBTQ-ness of the House of Mouse and other producers of children's media. Quote, Child groomers and pedophiles. They have now openly admitted that they have a not-so-secret agenda with your children. This is the death of Disney. Hashtag boycott Disney. That's Candace Owens, March 31st, 2022. Child groomers and pedophiles, you say? I am a student of pop culture, and you can't just go tweeting hashtag boycott Disney and not have me notice. So Candace Owens got my attention. This led me down a path to discover another more, and I use this term very, very generously, well-thought-out argument. Quote, the employees at Disney are apparently ready to indoctrinate your children in queer theory and wokeness and sexual indoctrination. Multiple Disney employees have talked about spooning a bunch of left-wing sexual values in the children's programming. In Shapiro, March 30th, 2022. There was something about Shapiro's words here that reminded me of someone else. Like, I swear that I've heard them before. And for this exact same reason, quote, without any doubt and without any reservation, comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. Frederick Wortham, April 21st, 1954. There's the guy. 68 years, almost to the day. 67 years. 11 months, 24 days, 64, 68 years later, and this is where we still are. Seduction of the Innocent. If only Shapiro and Owens had waited a year to do this, and I could have made a 69 joke, which would have been perfect. But no, once again, perfect literary comic irony is foiled by the linear nature of space time. Anyway, 68 years later, and alas, here we are again arguing once again the effects of sexualization in comics and cartoons on minors with actual threats to once again litigate the whole thing before Congress, assuming they can spell well enough to get Mickey Mouse's name right. Now, I want to note that any queer coding that Wortham or Shapiro and Owens might be detecting is certainly subtle at best. That said, child sexuality in Disney cartoons is far from novel. Fantasia and Bambi implied heterosexual intimate play was natural, at least amongst semi-anthropomorphic woodland creatures, as early as 1940 and 1942. But from Shapiro's rants, one might assume that the standard modern Disney fair was Wally Wood's Disneyland Memorial Orgy, a Disney parody first published in 1967, rather than a vague and coy glance between two female characters or two men daring to dance with one another. Luca, Frozen, and Beauty and the Beast, the so-called queer left-wing pedophile propaganda being spoon-fed to our children, certainly are not lost girls. 
But this was true in 1954 as well. While Wortham may have been worried about the adult content of crime suspense stories being consumed by children, he was as much, if not more, concerned with what he presumed was a homosexual relationship between Batman and Robin. In truth, as everyone at this talk certainly knows, the claims of ideological indoctrination being spread through children's media didn't end with Wortham, and they won't end here. I expect we'd also mostly agree that Shapiro and Owen's claims are probably disingenuous. That's certainly the common retort. When we're not making fun of conservative pundits for laughable misunderstandings of anatomy or the ability to or the inability to spell Mickey Mouse's name, our defenses often focus on their hypocrisy in messaging. What we don't do is defend the actual alleged smut, the sexually explicit queer material that Shapiro and Owens seem to be imagining or at least implying permeates modern children's media. The adult content that you have to actually spend hours combing through Tumblr just to make a conference slideshow presentation. If Elsa is supposed to be lesbian, and she is, then would it really be so bad to see her kiss a girl? Is it really so bad if she holds another girl's hand? That certainly is a problem for the heterosexual Disney princesses, including her own sister, Anna, who makes multiple BDSM allusions to her sex life with her male fiancé in their most recent film. Much of the public discourse I've seen countering uh, the Shapiro narrative has focused on the argument that Disney, the richest media empire on the planet, is no more invested in pushing a narrative indoctrinating children into homosexuality than they are indoctrinating them into heterosexuality. And they're right. But so is Shapiro? And you, that just really kind of hurts to say out loud. But yes, Disney is technically trying to, quote, spoon feed left wing sexual values into children's programming. But is that really a bad thing? We use children's literature to model behavior and social norms. We always have. It's why we have fairy tales in the first place. It's why we have children's comics. It's the reason that we want Disney and content creators to increase their representation of queer characters. We seek to normalize the, the non-heteronormative, to destigmatize the perverse. We want to create a world where Elsa can slyly reference her PG-13 lesbian kinks as freely as Anna can express her, her straight ones. Equality will not be reached when Elsa shares her first girl-on-girl -girl kiss, but when an adult innuendo can be made to her, to her lesbian sex life intended to go over the head of the child viewer. Only once we are as comfortable with the notion that the queer children's character has an unseen, healthy sex life equal to those of the heterosexual characters will more casual queer intimate contacts seem entirely natural. And porn comics like Lost Girls are how, are how we get there. One of the most curious aspects of Lost Girls is its complete disavowal of the mystical. This is an obvious departure from Moore, whose other work, from Swamp Thing to Promethea, frequently mixes sex and the supernatural. Yet here, in a book featuring protagonists with more than a century of canon magical powers, including flight, size manipulation, teleportation, and mind control, he instead opts to depict their lovemaking as utilizing only the natural methods that we are all capable of. Eric Tribunella uses semiotics and psychoanalysis to ultimately conclude that Lost Girls appears to be advocating precisely this notion of fantasy as visionary imagination, and it represents the intersection of sex, innovation, childhood, literature, and visual art, 
all of which are associated with and demand imagination. For him, childhood fantasies of magic have been replaced with fantasies of carnal pleasure. I argue something more is at play. The powers in Gebby's usage of what Moore calls the benign, and which I more succinctly call the mundane. By utilizing the visual tropes of child literature to render sex as natural rather than supernatural, Gebby takes away its mystery. Sex is not magical. It is simply carnal. Homosexual and heterosexual acts are in effect equal. The women readily engage in intimate acts with each other and a multitude of partners of varying body types, ages, and genders. Unlike much contemporary porn, there is no artificial divide between portrayal of male or female homosexual acts. Any character can penetrate or be penetrated by any other on any given page. They require no pixie dust, no strange potions, no magic slippers, only fingers, tongues, genitals, and perhaps a few more or less conventional sex toys. It certainly would have been possible to create a mystical adult fantasy of Alice, Dorothy, and Wendy, even without being sexually explicit. J. Scott Campbell has made a career of depicting these same characters as sexy, playing on the male gaze and erotic comic visual tropes. Campbell's comics are adult books satirizing children's literature. Similarly, one might consider Gullivera, Milo Minara's erotic gender-flipped adaptation of Jonathan Swift's classic, or Vittorio Giardino's Little Ego, which reimagines Windsor McKay's protagonist as a nubile young woman, using her knightly jaunts into slumberland to explore her erotic desires. However, it should be noted that the original Gulliver's Travels has several explicitly erotic passages, and the classic Little Nemo is nothing if not a weekly psychoanalytic exercise in Freudian interpretation of dreams. Giardino and Minara simply remind us that Slumberland and Lilliput are realms for adults that are being consumed by children. Nearly every page of Lost Girls is sexually explicit, so much so that after 30 chapters, watching Wendy and a cross-dressing, gender-queer Dorothy don strap-ons to pleasure a readily accepting older Alice, orally, vaginally, and anally, in vibrant, childlike watercolor, seems somehow entirely natural beautiful, even normative. Sex is benign, mundane. The only fantasy that exists in Lost Girls is the magic of total societal acceptance of queerness, pansexuality, and polyamory. And this is possible because above all else, Lost Girls is simply a children's book for adults. Thank you. Hello again, I'm back. So, finally, we have Wayne and Monica. Wayne and Monica presented on the third day of the conference together on the same panel. In fact, Wayne went first and Monica went right after him. So, I'm not going to interrupt. I'm just going to play their presentations back to back the way that we experienced it when we were at the conference. First, you'll be hearing Wayne talking about one of his favorite series, Wicked and Divine. After that, you'll hear Monica talking about the Hellfire Gala as presented in X-Men comic books. I'll be back to close things out at the end. So, all right, good. This is a, a follow-up to a 
the presentation I did last year. I, I'm up to my eyeballs in the series Wicked and the Divine. Uh, this is part of a much larger project I'm working on, but this is this is part of what I'm doing. So the most ruthless of tyrants, ecstatic joy and mob mentality in the Wicked and the Divine. The Wicked and the Divine, or Wicked as it has become known in fandom, was an image comic series by writer Kieran Gillen, artist Jamie McKelvey, and colorist Matt Wilson, published beginning in 2014. The basic premise is every 90 years, a group of 12 gods are reincarnated in the bodies of young people. They have tremendous powers, and in two years' time, they all die. The cycle of rebirth, death, and return has been going on for centuries, taking place all over the world. There will probably be spoilers in this. There are always 12. At least that's what they're told. Over the course of the series, we discover that different gods appear in different cycles. The cycle of the return predates many of the mythic pantheons we know, so it makes sense to view the gods as archetypes of power instead of incarnations of specific gods, though they do take on the names. It makes sense in the context of the series that these avatars inspired the stories and names of the gods of history. Anaki, an immortal who acts as a guide for the gods, claims that they are responsible for inspiring humanity to make them more creative. According to her, all art is possible only because of the inspirations of the power of the various pantheons that have appeared. In 2014, the gods return. In this incarnation, they appear in the guise of modern pop rock stars. They hold concerts attended by thousands and become rich and famous, inspiring devoted fans. Each of them, in addition to having various superpowers, have the ability to perform. It's not music as we think of it. Their performances cannot be captured on any type of recording device, nor can it be transmitted electronically. It is purely a live experience, only for those who are present. No one can describe what the sensation is, though many try. Channeled through each specific god with shadings and specificity unique to them it is a completely immersive, transcendent experience of the divine. Brown University describes performance studies as an interdisciplinary field of research that focuses on the pervasiveness of performance as a central element of social and cultural life. Potentially any instance, instance of expressive behavior or cultural enactment. It goes on to give examples of everything that might be considered performance. For example, acting, music, public speaking, sex and gender, etc. Philip Auslander, a leading contributor to performance studies, says, central to my understanding of performance analysis as applied to popular music is the concept of the persona, which I have used before in discussing performance art and stand-up comedy. I see the performer in popular music as defined by three layers. The real person, the performer as a human being, the performance persona, the performer's self-presentation, and the character, a figure portrayed in a song text. While performance studies focuses on the performer, the response of the crowd is an aspect of this as well. Crowd effect is the idea that the response of the crowd affects performance. A receptive, enthusiastic audience can make the performance better. An adversarial crowd can lessen it. Essentially, a psychological feedback loop is generated between the performer and the audience, linking them. Being part of an audience or any large group of people can involve a powerful shared experience for the individual. A loss of ego and the personal boundaries of the self can occur, sweeping a person into a shared experience. This loss of self into a greater whole can be transcendent, as the experience of the gods of Wiccan seems to be, or the loss of self can result in a loss of personal responsibility and morality. There is an effect that has been measured called unintentional group synchrony. The heartbeats and breathing pattern of members of a crowd begin to sync. With musical performances where one can physically feel the music, the thrum of the bass in your chest and the pounding rhythm of drums, this makes sense. But it seems to happen no matter what the stimulus. 
The character of Cassandra is the voice of skepticism in the series, even after she becomes a member of the Pantheon as one of the Norns. Part of the reason for her skepticism is her complete inability to experience the magic of the God's performance. She says, I've been to see every single one of you, and you know what? I don't feel anything. She's unable to experience the crowd effect or group synchrony in the context of their performance. Before moving further, there are two more concepts I wish to mention briefly. Carl Jung proposed the idea of individuation. This is a process by which each person becomes increasingly whole over the course of their life. It's not simply a matter of individuality, which may be nothing more than a role which one plays. This is a lifetime of shedding the roles we've been given or have or have assumed and discovering who we are, our deepest authenticity. The second idea is de-individuation, the process by which people lose themselves in a group identity. The most recent model of this, the social identity model of de-individuation effects, argues that de-individuation can have the effect of decreasing attention to individual characteristics and interpersonal differences within the group. Social identity performance can fulfill two general functions. The first is by affirming, conforming, or strengthening individual or group identities. This can be a positive aspect, strengthening ties of community, allowing teams to work well together, and creating the feelings of group unity that can be transformative and transcendent. The second is persuading audiences into adopting specific behaviors, specific behaviors. This is where personal responsibility for actions begins to deteriorate. Early versions of the theory claim the anonymity of the crowd led to actions one would not engage in on their own. Social identity theorists argue that a de-individuation situation does not cause a loss of self, but a shift in identity from individual to member of a crowd, giving responsibility over to the mass movement rather than claiming it on a personal level. This is where I was just following orders is born. For the purposes of this presentation, I want to focus on two of the gods of the 2014 Pantheon and the nature of the performance. The first of these is Dionysus, the Greek god of wine. The variations of his story were told in many cultures. He was a vegetation god of resurrection. The consumption of wine was a sacrament of inviting the power of the god into oneself, much like communion. He was a god of pleasure and, and ecstasy, loosening the boundaries of ego and self to allow for the experience of the divine. But there's a fine line between ecstasy and frenzy, as anyone who's been around drunk people know. His follower, the Mayanads, were wild women who would violently tear people into shreds. Through his performance, Dionysus is able to create a hive mind experience with his audience, which manifests in a rave-like dance party. As outlined previously, individuality is briefly sacrificed for the experience of being part of something larger and better than yourself. Feelings of ecstasy and transcendence accompany this loss of self. While at last, it's a brief taste of nirvana. All individual fears and worries, all attachments to the world disappear in a state of spiritual euphoria. Those who experience his performance are his spiritual monads, bound to him by his power and charisma. It is implied that Dionysus could use this ability in a more direct and controlling way, but by virtue of his personality, he never does this. Dionysus is the one member of the pantheon everyone likes. Cassandra refers to him as the best person I ever met. His stated goals are simply to make people happy. The intent of the performer, conscious or unconscious, can have a profound effect on the shared experience of the crowd. All the Pantheon have real world inspirations and some more than others. Uh, Dionysus is based on a lot of different anonymous DJs, but I see a little bit of Moby in him. Nietzsche said, in song and in dance, man expresses himself as a member of a higher community. He has forgotten how to walk and speak. He is about to take a dancing flight into the air. He feels himself a god. He himself now walks about enchanted in ecstasy. He is no longer an artist. He has become a work of art. In these paroxysms of intoxication, the artistic power of all nature reveals itself. He saw art as the highest aspiration of humankind. He theorized an Apollonian Dionysian dichotomy, wherein he argues that aesthetics and the artistic enterprise are inextricably bound to this duality and the tension between them. 
In general, Apollo represents forces related to order and logic, while Dionysus is related to chaos and irrationality. While this clash may be destructive, it is also the source of creativity. Jim Morrison of the Doors, heavily influenced by the writings of Nietzsche, openly embraced his role as a Dionysian performer, identifying perhaps too strongly with the archetype. When he was 18, Morrison wrote a paper called The Sexual Neurosis of Prowess. It's the journal of Jim's conception of the performer as healer, the shaman who can draw out evil spirits and banish them. Prowess, like people, have diseases that can be diagnosed and treated. There is, however, a dark side to this ability. Given this model, the performer can be either a healing force for good or conversely act to bring out the worst impulses of crowd. Another of Nietzsche's ideas is that of herd morality. This is the comfort that arises from simply going along with the crowd. A mindless submission to a prevailing morality thrust upon the masses by traditional authority. Rather than an act of willful surrender to an... Rather than an act of will for surrender to an ineffable communion, it is more akin to lemmings leaping off a cliff. In this state, the masses can be manipulated into any sort of atrocity by either actively participating or by simply turning a blind eye. The second member of the pantheon I wish to focus on is Woden. Woden is one of many names given to the chief Norse and Germanic deity known, best known as Odin, the king of the gods of Asgard. The name translates roughly as Lord of Frenzy. Though other sources link it to the idea of possession. Most of what survives about Odin comes from the poetic and prose written by Snorri Sturluson in the 13th century. He uses stolen technological magic to replicate the powers of the other gods. To use the parlance of musical techno music technology, he samples them and rewrites their abilities to his own needs. He very much sees himself as a supervillain. Woden is overtly modeled on Daft Punk, whose techno dance music relies heavily on the use of sampling. Woden has his own group of followers who he refers to as the Valkyries. Unlike Dionysus Minads, their loyalty to him is not based on supernatural mind control, but by the fame and fortune they gain by being part of his world. He controls them through the very human means of bullying, gaslighting, and financial psychological reward. In 1936, partially in response to the rise of Hitler and the Nazi party, Carl Jung published an essay called Wotan, one of the variations of the name Woden, wherein he discussed the mass psychology of the German people using the myths of this Anglo-Saxon Norse deity. Jung discusses the phenomena of being possessed by an archetype using German words that refer to an experience of the holy. He says, perhaps we may sum up this general phenomenon as Ergriffenheit, a state of being seized or possessed. The term postulates not only an Ergriffener, one who is seized, but also an Ergriefer, one who seizes. And I apologize for my horrible pronunciation of German. Given these definitions in The Wicked and the Divine, the gods can be defined as Ergriefers, while the young mortals they possess as Ergriffeners. The repeated origin sequences where the reader sees the gods descending into the consciousness of the characters will be the moment of Ergriffen height for them. Jung compared Wotan, Woden, to Dionysus, referring to both of them as gods of frenzy. He described Wotan, all gods really, as an Ergriefer of men, meaning an idea of the divine which possesses people. He began to identify Wotan as an archetype of war and violence that exists within the unconscious, one that led to identification with groupthink instead of with individuation. This was in reference to what was happening in Germany in the 1930s as an attempt to explain and understand how so many people could come under the thrall of nationalistic rhetoric. An entire people were possessed by this archetype through a surrender of the individual will to the hysteria of the masses, inspired by a charismatic leader who was all but deified by his, by his followers. In the narrative, Woden uses his stolen technology to sample the power of Dionysus, allowing him to wrest control of the crowd away from the god of the dance. 
The participants quickly go from a happy, ecstatic group of dancers to a violent mob, uncontrollably eager to act out violence in the service of Woden's incitement. The symbolic Mayanads turn on Dionysus and tear him apart. But Woden himself has been used throughout the series by another, someone whose powers are vast and beyond those of most of the pantheon. She has been manipulating people using many of the same psychological techniques that Woden used for centuries. When she no longer has use for him, she seizes control of the Valkyrie's minds. And symbolically linking Woden to Dionysus, the Valkyries tear Woden to pieces. Each of the gods of the pantheon were given a story that told them who they were. Each believed that it made them special, made them stand out from the crowd of normal people. But this was not a true individuation. They discovered they had been manipulated by a charismatic leader and were simply the next in a long line of young people who had fallen under her sway. They were not special. They were simply following the story they had been given. Jung says the aim of individuation is nothing less than to divest the self of the false wrappings of the persona on the one hand and the suggestive power of primordial images on the other. This process is long and complicated, easily overwhelmed by the voice of the masses. He continues, insofar as society is itself decomposed of de-individualized human beings, it is completely at the mercy of ruthless individualists. Let it band together into groups and organizations as much as it likes. It is just this banding together and the resultant extinction of the individual personality that makes it succumb so readily to a dictator. But that does not mean that it has to be a lonely solo journey. Jung also said individuation is only possible with, with people, through people. You must realize that you are a link in a chain, that you are not an electron suspended somewhere in space or aimlessly drifting through the cosmos. The challenge is in differentiating between the authentic voice of the self and the drone of the collective. When does your participation in groups help lead you to a higher self versus sublimating yourself to dangerous mob mentality? And that's the end. Okay, so uh, just a brief introduction to me is uh, up until recently, I was also an independent scholar. Now I get to say that I'm not an independent scholar anymore. Um, I'll be joining uh, UCLA's uh, theater and performance studies program in the fall. Uh, <laughs> So another little link between the two presentations. Um, so I'm going to be talking, uh, I'm a fashion historian, and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Marvel's uh, Hellfire Gala. So... Okay, in uh, summer 2021, Marvel Comics uh, released the Hellfire Gala story arc across 12 X-Men titles. And this makes it the largest mutant crossover event in X-Men publication history. So publicity for these comics was largely driven by the release of artwork by Russell Dodderman. And he designed new formal wear for the event um, that according to the Marvel website was supposed to depict this like quote unquote fusion of mutant and human fashion. There were a lot of variant comic uh, covers that featured Dodderman's concept art and um, there were sort of behind the scenes looks that were published on Marvel's Instagram account by artist Phil Noto of the host Emma Frost getting ready um, so you can sort of see that there's central marketing strategies for the Hellfire Gala take multiple opportunities to place fashion at the forefront of the comic, especially via use of this shared word gala. 
Um, a lot of fan response and internet dialogue uh, surrounding the Hellfire event drew uh, very overt comparisons to the Met Gala, which is one of the fashion industry's largest annual events. It's hosted by the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art every year. So, um, of course, I was like, I have to do a project on this, right? Because um, I, along with being a fashion historian, um, I also, uh, my master's background is in curation of uh, fashion and textile collections for museums like the Met. Um, and I work in exhibition installation and my master's thesis was on Claremont's run of the X-Men. Um, so there was this point in time where, and like my area of specialty is like when superheroes aren't dressed in their superhero costumes. And I was like, wow, all of those things are lining up. We're going to do this. So, <laughs> um, this is like my thing. I, so I feel like I'm pretty uniquely positioned to uh, discuss the ways that these references to the Met Gala um, are going to be able to help us better understand the, the narrative comics text of the Hellfire Gala and the significance that there is in actually using clothes other than the superhero costume at the forefront of the narrative. So I thought it'd be helpful to start with uh, a little plot synopsis for those of us who have not read the Hellfire Gala. Um, so the main takeaways are that Emma Frost, who's the leader of the Hellfire Trading Company, opens the grates of uh, Krakoa which is like the island home nation for mutant kind. And they host this kind of state dinner party and it's intended to celebrate mutant culture and encourage unity um, between mutants and non-mutants. And during the gala, there's a cocktail hour and a formal dinner and a concert, which is very similar to the actual event uh, calendar of the Met Gala. Um, but then also during the comic, there's a lot of like, actual com like normal comic book plot so um the hellfire trading company is supported financially by this like black market for life-saving and life-extending pharmaceuticals and there's a lot of like underground snooping and diplomacy surrounding getting these drugs legalized uh during the plot of the comic and then there's also a very big sort of marvel universe shifting moment where some of the more powerful mutants that you've probably heard of, like Jean Grey and Storm and Magneto, um, they help terraform Mars and they turn Mars into the mutant planet Araco. And they say that this is going to be the new capital of the solar system. And I'm somebody who like comes at the X-Men as being a giant fan of like 80s X-Men. And I've kept up a little bit but meaning like I've read comics over the years, but I was like, wow, this sounds really evil, like compared to the things that I'm used to the X-Men doing in the 80s. So I would argue that for both the Hellfire Gala and the Met Gala, the thing that they have the most in common is that fashion is being utilized for spectacle. And what I mean is that spectacle or that fashion is sort of centered as this marketing technique that's the thing that gets you in the door for the actual events so spectacle is defined by the idea of mass media and the proliferation of images so it's key that fashion is the thing that you remember or associate most with the galas because it's the thing that you've literally seen the most of uh, the problem with spectacle is that its connotative meanings are um, that of inauthenticity or distraction. Um, so it's this idea that it's hiding or overcompensating for something. So if we're talking of like shady pharmaceuticals, Guy Debord, 
who's the originator of like academic theory regarding spectacle, he literally refers to the consumer as being drugged by spectacular images. So I think it's really important that we discuss what may be hiding underneath these spectacles of fashion. So the Hellfire Gala and the Met Gala are the perfect case study to understand the problem with using fashion for spectacle. Um, because the Hellfire Gala is based on the Met Gala, I think it makes the most sense to start with deconstructing the source material that it's borrowing from first. So the Costume Institute is the only department that, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art that has to fund itself, which it does through just one fundraiser a year, which is the Met Gala. It usually has a theme which then corresponds to an exhibition that's open for a few months afterward. Um, and then the exhibit is open exclusively for the one night fundraiser for the celebrities. And then um, it's accessible to the public the next day. So tickets for the Met Gala are by invitation only via the co-chair Anna Wintour, who is also the editor in chief at Vogue. So if we want to make a very like cheeky comparison to the two ice queens who were in charge, Anna Wintour is also the person who Meryl Streep's character in Devil Wears Prada is based off of. So if you've managed to be invited because you're a designer or a celebrity or a socialite or a financier, your ticket is $30,000. Uh, your table is $250,000. And the average money raised is somewhere between $12 and $15 million for this one night. So this is an inherently very capitalist function um, in which in order to survive the world's largest fashion collection in a museum ever must survive off of the leadership of a woman whose other job it is, is to sell magazines. So we can think of the clothes that are acquired and displayed in these exhibitions as part of the ways that we conceive our definitions of what high fashion is, which is akin to sort of cultural discussions of what high art versus popular culture is. Um, while ignoring the fact that these exhibitions are structurally, institutionally biased and often funded by the designers themselves as official sponsors. Uh, it may be because the exhibit is localized to New York that makes it not accessible to everyone that a lot of times our ideas of what the Costume Institute and fashion actually are become synonymous with the celebrity red carpet that happens outside of the event um, because these are the images that get circulated. Because again, this is about the mass media of images, the things that are seen the most. Um, designers usually choose a muse to accompany them and then they dress them according to the theme. If I'm getting nitpicky here, there is a point that I want to make, which is that by relying on the aesthetic recognizability and visual signifiers, there's a strong argument to be made that the garments, by having the garments be expected to follow a theme, um, that's a lot closer to a costume party than actual fashion. And we're conflating the meanings of the words costume and fashion. Uh, the problem is that the general public gets wrapped up in the spectacle of critiquing these outfits that are worn by celebrity muses at the gala, while largely ignoring the larger problems of the actual exhibition and the Costume Institute. For example, um, these images are from the 2019 camp exhibition. And they, by inviting someone like RuPaul, who's the host of Drag Race, or Billy Porter of the TV series Pose, which very much exemplifies the ways that queer communities of color utilize camp to critique and survive marginalization 
And by viewing images of Lena Wythe on the red carpet in a suit emblazoned with the phrase Black Drag Queens Invented Camp, there are many consumers who have lost sight of the fact that there were only three designers of color who were actually featured in the exhibition. And that none of the didactic museum text within the exhibition included discussions of queer icons of color or of the longstanding relationship between queer communities of color and camp performance. So it's also important to underscore that while Anna Wintour meticulously approves the guest list, there is some creative freedom that is made by the designers and the clothes who are created for the red carpet event, meaning that without the text on White's jacket, um, there would have been no explicit commentary regarding the sociopolitical history of camp present. So this is just one example rather than an isolated incident in which the Costume Institute year after year allows marginalized voices to be co-opted via performative inclusion at the gala without any long-standing meaningful changes to the collection, exhibition, and preservation of garments within a museum, which will ultimately determine what is worthy of being deemed part of high fashion or the fashion history zeitgeist. I bring up this very long tangent. To then uh, illustrate the ways that spectacle can be distracting uh, and cause deeply harmful consequences. Another key component of Debord's concept of spectacle is recuperation, or that potentially subversive ideas are co-opted, diffused, and then fed back into the mainstream discourse. Specifically, these ideas are depowered through their appropriation of imagery into spectacle. So the inclusion of these subversive queer figures, icons, or messages on the red carpet alongside celebrities like a Kardashian-Jenner means that they end up losing some of their historical power. The Costume Institute uses its gala to reaffirm a status quo of white Eurocentric ideas of fashion and high art. And all of this is relevant to the Hellfire Gala because we now hold all of the tools and technical mode of analysis that is necessary to unpack which ideologies are being reaffirmed underneath the spectacle of fashion at the Hellfire Gala. So the first question to answer is, what is the purpose of the gala? This one is not a fundraiser. The Hellfire Gala wants to assert that the mutant nation is a legitimate government. And fashion can help reinforce this purpose because historically, fashion has been used as a tool for asserting independence and cultural power. Some of the first patents issued in the United States after the Revolutionary War were for Native American style moccasin copies, um, which then became a huge European fashion fad. Or scholars like Dejerda Bartlett, Judd Stitzel, and Sukyung Kim have all studied the ways that Soviet governments after revolution have attempted to invent a new cultural ideology through the policing of new modes of dress. The key to these strategies is that they most often include the appropriation of an existent form of traditional ethnic dress costume from the geographic area, like the moccasins. But you can also think of Soviet embroidery or traditional Korean dress. This creates and reinforces a narrative that these societies are not actually new, but they have a historical precedent of always being there. So when we think about the garments that are designed for the Hellfire Gala, each one is designed to include callbacks to an individual mutant's powers and past costumes. Because mutant kind is defined by its individuality, this aesthetic through line considers powers as a type of ethnic dress, while the reference to old costumes asserts that their existence is not new. 
Both metaphorically and literally, the Hellfire Gala is using fashion as a place to assert the concept of mutant power. However, where the Met Gala invites dozens of designers to create red looks for the red carpet, um, meaning that there's some creative freedom within the comic book storyline, all of the clothes for the Hellfire Gala have been supposedly created by just one designer, uh, Jumbo Carnation, who is also the personal designer for Emma Frost. When we study fashion, it is so important to discern whether the clothes that are being worn were chosen by the person wearing them or if they were dressed up in them by someone else. If they dress themselves, these clothes are a reflection of autonomy or an articulation of how they represent their inner psyche to the outside world. Um, If someone else dressed them, it says less about a character's own identity and more about how the clothing designer views the wearer or wants that wearer to be seen. While many of the garments drawn to be jumbo designs are supposed to be referential of a character's classic look, many of them are uh, potentially not even based off of superhero costumes that the heroes chose for themselves, but ones that they were gifted by Charles Xavier. Meaning that these clothes are projections on top of projections of what those in power want mutant superheroes to look like, rather than representations of characterization for the wearer. I feel like I shouldn't really have to explain in 2022 um, why it's a problem to continue to have Storm dressed up in clothes that were given to her by white men when there are plenty of storylines in which Storm actually chose her own clothes. But, you know, here we are. So (laughs) narratively speaking, uh, Jumbo Carnation is the person who first suggested to Emma Frost the concept of the Hellfire Gala without either of them knowing what it actually was. The state dinner aspect was developed after Jumbo's idea for a fancy party. For Jumbo, this is much more about dressing up others as mutants in ethnic mutant costumes as like models, muses, Barbie dolls, according to his creative vision. Uh, As a member of her inner circle, we can assume that Jumbo and Emma Frost hold a similar ideology. This would mean that neither Jumbo nor Emma Frost care much about the mutant pride that they're advertising. Because based on the comics, historically revisited themes would have actually what would have actually denoted a celebration of individuality uh, would have been encouraging characters to uh, utilize dress as a tool for articulating their identity themselves and letting them get dressed up themselves. Instead, what they're actually interested in is maintaining a pseudo individuality uh, that in actuality reinforces a hegemonic ideology um, through cultivating this common aesthetic which would then assume a common value system, which is especially dangerous to an event that is meant to define mutanthood to those outside of the community. So this is not dissimilar to the way that Pierre Bordeaux asserts that conceptions of taste, especially in regards to what is defined as high art or high fashion, are in fact markers of class gratification, which are designed by those in power to uphold a social hierarchy or the ways that Theodore Adorno would discuss that the idea of style is an obedience to a social hierarchy and that pseudo individuality is a simulation of choice that then keeps subordinate classes either unaware or content in their positions. And Walter Benjamin would even go as far as to warn that the aestheticizing of politics into spectacular distraction is inherently fascist. Uh, Jumbo and Emma Frost dressing everyone else ultimately limits opportunity for self-expression to be used as a mode of subversion, and dress becomes a technique for control 
all of which again sounds really, really evil. Um, so through this case study, there is a no denying the power of fashion. Uh, we've seen the way that it can regulate uh, those inside the social hierarchy. We've also seen the ways that spectacle can cause desire to those outside to want to participate in the system of subordination. Or it asks us to ignore the ways that power may be suppressing others. Fans want to look at red carpet celebrities and play fashion designer uh, with fan art or dress up in cosplay of these problematic clothes, which is then detaching them from the ideologies that they represent. But spectacle is a dangerous distraction. Uh, spectacle's true purpose is to maintain social control. Marvel has asked readers to delight in the false power of playing fashion police rather than confront moral discussions of actual power from watching their favorite characters literally stage an intergalactic clue. Because again, evil. Um, especially when you consider that the costumes that are featured um, on the covers aren't even necessarily the characters who are being featured within the actual plot line. And Marvel has no intention of challenging this new status quo as they've announced that they have the desire to make the Hellfire Gala a yearly event. And they've recently begun rolling out advertising, which is centered around some special new costumes again for 2022. So in conclusion, this is probably the one time ever that you will hear me, the fashion historian, asking you to give the clothes a little bit less attention. Well, there you go. Now you know what it's like to be at an academic conference, or at least what it's like to be at PCA and see us present. If you watch this on YouTube, please do us a favor and hit the like and subscribe button. You know, maybe the bell, whatever it is people do on YouTube. And if you didn't watch it on YouTube, do us a favor. Go over to YouTube, subscribe to our channel, like and subscribe. And I'm going to try and make more videos in the future. In the meantime, please follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. All of the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show, all those same places, at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where we post about what we're going to be talking about next week. And you can leave us comments on this and any other show or suggest topics or say anything else. And sometimes we pick guests from, that, from those blogs. If you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor, leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out, especially if you leave us a five-star review, not just a rating, on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. That gooses the algorithm, makes us more popular, and makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye!